We're going to begin a series of messages today called Gifts for a King. It's not really about the wise men as much as about the gifts that they brought. We're going to be talking about the significance of each of the three gifts that were presented to Jesus. And they were not, um, uh, the, the uh, wise men may not have been there on the night of his birth. It may have been as late as two years later, but somewhere in that first two-year period, these, these uh, men show up uh, after journeying for a, a very long distance in search of the, the, the one who, uh, a, a celestial body, a star that they had noticed, um, was announcing to the world as a coming king. And so they come and they present gold, frankincense and myrrh. I don't think the Bible wastes words and I think that whenever you find those kinds of details given, they're important to explore. I, in fact, in my uh, reading of the Bible and in my relationship with the Lord, some of the richest uh, gems that I have ever been able to mine from the scripture have come from these seemingly small details. When you dig into them, you find that they're full of, of so much uh, meaning. So I think that there was importance uh, that, that uh, is behind those specific gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I'm going to take them in reverse order just because I want to. So we're going to start with myrrh this week. And here's a picture of a guy with a box of myrrh. Somebody asked me, where does myrrh come from? It comes from trees that are, that are found in the Arabian Peninsula. They, it's derived from the sap of those trees and made into various kinds of products, but ointments and perfumes and uh, scented oils and things like that. And so that's what myrrh is. We're going to talk about what it means in this situation by looking at Something that is recorded for us in Luke chapter 7, an incident out of the life of Jesus that illustrates to my, my heart uh, what was being offered there on that, on that occasion when the uh, wise men presented myrrh. So let's start reading at verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him, the Pharisee. So... Get the picture. Here's this guy. He's a Pharisee. He's a, he's a uh, notable, high-ranking person in the community. Most of the time, these Pharisees were pretty wealthy for reasons I won't get into right now. They were highly educated, demanded much respect, wise and are considered to be wise in, in uh, so many ways. And uh, this guy, this Pharisee, extends to Jesus an invitation to come to dinner. And it says, he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now, what you need to know before we go on is that these kinds of meals where uh, a, 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 a prominent person in the community would invite someone to dinner were considered a public affair. Not that everybody could come and eat, but everybody could come and watch. And the reason for that was because the Pharisee, or whoever this, the, the invitor was, um, they would want people to see the lavish spread that they could put out for, their, for this feast. They would want to impress people with the pomp and circumstance. They would want for them to be able to listen in on these very important conversations that would happen around the table. You know, it was, it was a show. And so it wouldn't be unusual for others who weren't invited to the dinner, actually, to come and be there. And that's what we read about in verse 37. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. 
Now Luke is being kind and gracious as he should be and as you would expect, but when he says that she's a sinner, he's saying he's meaning, he's signaling us this woman was a woman of reputation. This was a woman who was a prostitute and uh, known in the community as such. And when she heard or knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Now, alabaster is a stone. It's kind of like marble, but it can be worked to a point where it can be very um, thin and yet strong. It can be almost uh, translucent, so you can see through it a little bit. And it would be used to, for uh, many things, but it could be used to uh, hold, uh, like, a, like a, a glass bottle, it could hold um, uh, uh, ointment or perfume or scented oils and keep the scent inside. Uh, and um, so something like that is what she brings with her, and it contains something that we're told in English is fragrant oil, but in the Greek the word is muran myrrh. So she brings with her a bottle, an alabaster bottle or flask of myrrh. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping. Now, it says that he sat at dinner or sat down to eat, but that's not how they, they uh, came to the table in those days. They actually reclined at the table. So these guys are actually laying probably on their left side, on their, on their left elbow, on a couch or on the floor, on some sort of mat. And so if you were one of the, the people observing, you would be behind them where their feet would be. So, and that's where she is. And she's probably not alone. There's probably other people from the community there watching this important thing take place. But she's weeping. I don't think she came there to weep. I don't think she thought, well, I know, I'll go there and make a scene. I don't think that's what she intended to do. She knows her reputation. She knows that people don't want her there. But there's something that compels her to be there that day. And I think that it has to do with the fact that she's heard Jesus before. We're not told that. I, I can't verify that for sure. But I, I think it's highly likely that she's heard Jesus speak. Uh, because the reason he was invited by the Pharisee that, night, or that day for dinner was because of his uh, reputation as being a, uh, a notable person who is preaching about God. And so it's likely, in my view, that she's heard him speak. In fact, maybe that same day, when earlier that same day he said, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And maybe for the first time in her life, this woman recognizes that there's a possibility that somehow her sin could be dealt with. This burden that she bears could be dealt with, could be taken care of, that someone really cared about her. And so she comes. And she comes and then is overcome with the emotion of being in the presence of the Son of God, the one who offers forgiveness the one who offers the love of God, and she begins to weep. And it's a messy weep. You ever had one of those? I mean, she's, you know, he will learn later that Jesus has not washed his feet, and, and it would have been appropriate, the, the Pharisee didn't offer this, but it would have been appropriate for him to have offered his guest a place to wash his feet, because they wore open-toed shoes, and they walk on unpaved roads, and so there's dirt on his feet and mixing with the tears that are falling and, and you know, it's a mess. 
She unbinds her hair. It says she begins to wipe her, the, his feet with her, the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, she unbinds her hair, which would also have been considered, you know, um, not a, a faux pas, not something that you would do in public, but she does it because it's all she's got to kind of deal with the mess that she's making. I think some of you know what it's like to have that kind of weeping where your sin comes face to face with the awesome forgiveness of God. And what can you do? It like, it's like a dam bursts and the emotion overtakes you and you, you can't help but, but offer the, your, your passionate response. I remember well one time many years ago, and I had been a Christian for a long season, and I had uh, actually been a pastor for quite a while. I was in between churches getting ready to plant another one, and, in the, and I was working as a house painter. I wasn't on this job painting a house. I was painting a school, but I just had one of those moments. So I've had plenty. How many of you are glad that God doesn't show you all your sin at one time? <laughs> I don't even want to think about what that would be like. So I'd had plenty of, of God's um, Holy Spirit convicting me of sin and, and then receiving again the forgiveness of God that has been made available to me as a follower of Christ. But on this day, I'm, I'm painting away, minding my own business, and, and all of a sudden, like that, three things very specifically come to my mind, and I, I'm aware in an instant of this evil in my heart and soul that needs to be taken care of. Things that I had not yet surrendered to Jesus, not yet brought under his forgiveness. And I could feel the, the emotion rising, my throat constricting with emotion. And I knew it was going to overtake me very quickly and I got to do something. And so I, I didn't know how much time I had, but I knew I didn't have much. So I didn't even tell anybody I was leaving the job. I just laid down my, my brush and paint, ran to my car. I lived about a mile away. Got in my, I didn't know if I'd have a job when I came back, but I got in my car, drove home. Our uh, entrance to our uh, living room was on the second floor uh, of our house there, and I climbed the stairs, got the door unlocked, opened, and then fell in the doorway and laid there for a half an hour and sobbed before God. That's as far as I could get. When I got up from there, I was a different man. The scene we have here is a woman whose soul is being remade. Her sin is encountering the forgiveness of God. She didn't intend to come and make a scene there, but she couldn't help the one that was unfolding. And heaven knows we need a lot more of those to take place in our lives. Now, the Pharisee didn't think that this was appropriate, but nothing untoward or, or um, immoral is happening here. But he thinks so. And in verse 39, he, 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 we get an insight into what's going on in his brain. As he doesn't say this. He thinks it. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then in the next verse, Jesus does what he often does. He reads his mind. <laughs> And he says, 
uh, Simon, I have something to say to you. Remember, he hasn't said this out loud. Pharisee hasn't, he, he's just thought this stuff. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, well, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor, Jesus says, who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii is a form of currency. So one owes 10 times as much as the other. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Well, duh. <laughs> and he, Jesus, said to him, you have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman. So remember this scene. So Jesus is laying on his uh, left side, facing his host, the Pharisees. His feet are behind him. The woman is back there. It says he turns to her, but he speaks to Simon. He's looking at her, but he's speaking over his shoulder to Simon. He says, uh, do you see this woman? I think that the Pharisees' first response, and probably everybody else in the room, probably thought the same thing. Well, yeah, I see her. I know she is. We know what she is. We know where she lives, what she does. But Jesus was asking them, have you seen her? Do you see her? Not what she does, not her reputation. Do you see her? I think probably for the first time in this woman's life, she had someone looking at the real her. Do you see her? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. Now, that, that would have been, I know it seems a little odd, but in those days that would have been appropriate even for men to exchange a kiss of greeting, a little air kiss or kiss on the cheek, something like that. So you gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. Remember that. You did not anoint my head with oil. That would have been appropriate, too, as a symbol of, or a sign of, of uh, respect that you, you would. And we'll get into what it meant a little bit later to anoint someone's head with oil. But he said, you did not anoint my head with oil. Remember that. Um, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He's not saying that because she loved much, because she's done all this, I am forgiving her. He's saying because she's been forgiven, the response is this love that you see, this expression of love that you see. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, we all know that there isn't any of us who are less sinners than the other. Jesus wasn't saying, Pharisee, Simon, you uh, aren't being forgiven of much, but you think you have not been forgiven of much. You didn't have much to be forgiven of. So your response is not the same as hers. He's, not, he's talking about the difference between people who know how much they've been forgiven and those who are deceived to think they haven't been forgiven much. And he's saying this woman knows how much she's been forgiven. Then he said to her, so now he's, he speaks to her. This is, these are his first words to her. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, what it is to hear those words from Jesus. 
your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And he was launching into her into a brand new life. A brand new life. Powerful scene. But I, want, I ask you to read it with me and look at it a little closely with me because of the significance of what she offered that day when she poured out myrrh at Jesus' feet and how that corresponds to the gift that was offered by the wise men at, uh, when Jesus was at his birth. Let's talk a little bit about myrrh because wise men and women, wise men and wise women always offer myrrh. To Jesus, myrrh. In the Bible, it, myrrh is symbolic of anointing. Uh, when God was giving Moses the directions for the, the life of the Israelites, uh, in other words, the Ten Commandments, the instructions for the, the furnishings of the tabernacle and how it was to be assembled, which is all very exact, among those instructions that God gave to Moses was a recipe for an, an anointing oil that was to be used. It was supposed to be poured out on the pieces of furniture after they were created. It was supposed to be poured out on the, pre, the uh, uh, high priest, excuse me, the other priests and the Levites that served in the, um, in the tabernacle. It later was used uh, to anoint uh, those who would become king of Israel. Remember Saul and David and Solomon, those guys were all anointed with with this oil that God prescribed very specifically. And he said, this uh, recipe is for an anointing oil that's not to be used for any other thing, only to symbolize the transference of divine authority onto a person or a thing. So it's a symbol of the transference of divine or the giving of divine authority, the setting apart of someone or something as divine, uh, divinely under divine control. And the, the, one of the main ingredients of that oil was myrrh. So it symbolizes, um, it symbolizes anointing or the transference of divine authority. And that's why I said it, was it would have been appropriate when uh, Jesus came to Simon's house as a guest that you would pour oil on him as, uh, as a symbol of, of respect for a person. And, and that wasn't offered. Another thing that myrrh was used for in the Bible was uh, prophetic of sacrificial death. There are uh, four Gospels the four books in the Bible that talk about Jesus' life and ministry. We're reading from the Gospel of Luke, which is the third, but there are three others, Matthew, Mark, and John. Three other Gospels all have uh, recorded a similar incident, but not the same one. Sometimes they get confused. But a similar incident where a woman poured uh, oil out on the feet of Jesus. And on those occasions, Jesus said from his own lips, he said, this woman is doing so in preparation for my death. She's symbolically announcing that I, my, my, I'm here to die sacrificially for the sin of the world. So it, it had uh, that meaning. In fact, 
you know, the Egyptians, they embalmed their dead. The Jews or the Hebrews, the way they prepared people for the grave was that after washing their body, they would put on ointments, and, including myrrh, and wrap them in cloth. And that's how they dealt with the uh, preparation of dead bodies. So it was when Jesus was crucified and laid in the tomb, that was the process that was intended to take place. It got short-circuited a little bit because it was the Sabbath and they, didn't, uh, they couldn't fully prepare his body. That's why the three women were coming back on the day of his resurrection to, the, to finish that job, to, continue, or to fully prepare the body for, for its burial with myrrh and other spices and ointment. So it's, it's about that. But it's also, myrrh is also emblematic of personal surrender. And that's what we see here in Luke chapter 7. We see a woman demonstrating her personal surrender to God with the pouring out of myrrh. Because wise men and wise women surrender to Jesus, their lives. And two aspects of their lives. First, the life they had. And really, that's what was happening with her tears. She was, she was laying at the feet of Jesus the life that she had, lay, letting go of everything about who she's been and what she's been and all of that sin and brokenness. The tears were evidence of the offering of her, the life that she had. And as I've said earlier, many of us can relate to that. We understand what that's like and oh. What a transformation happens when I leave behind the life that I had and begin to receive the forgiveness of God. But then wise men and wise women also take it a step further and surrender the life we wish we had. And that's what myrrh symbolizes. Let's talk about it a little bit more. You know, um, Hebrew women, Jewish women, uh, often carried with them uh, around their neck a vial, a flask, a bottle of perfume. And <clears throat> now look, the other night, I, uh, look, I, I don't wear cologne or um, aftershave uh, very often, anything like that, because I deal with a lot of people, and sometimes people have allergies and so forth, and I don't want to be the cause of someone breaking out in hives, right? Go, go uh, spend some time with a pastor and have a, a seizure or something. That's not going <laughs> to... I don't want to be the cause of that, so I don't. Uh, but over the years, people have given me bottles of stuff, my father-in-law in particular. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's something about me that he wants to improve, I don't know. But anyway, so I have stuff in a drawer. The other night, don't ask me why, but anyway, I put on some cologne. I just reached in the drawer, put something and squirted myself with it, right? So uh, Sue comes along and she says, wow, that smells good, what's that? And I actually have no idea. I said to her, I said, well, I, I don't know. I just reached in the door, grabbed something, and squirted it on myself. What do I, can I tell you, that would never happen with a woman. She just reached in the drawer, grabbed something, and squirted herself, right? That's never, ever going to happen. There's purpose behind the application of any kind of scent, right? And, um, and even, even to the point where Women can, and look, I'm not a woman, obviously, okay, but I've lived with them for over 40 years, so I, and I had two daughters, so I get this, that it can even be, 
to the, come to the point where you have sort of a signature scent. I read these, uh, this series of books called the Mitford series. I highly recommend them. Uh, and in that series, there's a, one of the main characters is a woman who often when she's introduced in the storyline, it will say that there was, with her presence, the scent of wisteria. That was her signature scent. I don't know what yours might be, Coco Chanel or whatever it is, but you might have a signature scent. And these women did too. So much so they had it in a bottle around their, their neck. And it was interesting because... You know, the Jews had very strict rules about the Sabbath, you know, what you could do and what you can't do on the Sabbath. And um, so, it was so restraining and restrictive on their lives. Just volumes were written by the rabbis to try to interpret Sabbath restrictions. In other words, you couldn't climb a tree, for instance, because you might break a branch. And if you did, well, that would be work. It would be like sawing a limb. So you can't climb trees. There's all these weird and very detailed rules and restrictions about Sabbath. So one of the, one of the quandaries uh, that had to be dealt with with regard to Sabbath registration or regulation was could a woman carry her perfume around her neck on the Sabbath? The rabbis ultimately decided that she could because it wasn't something apart from her, that she was carrying, it was so identified with who she was, it was considered part of her. So she could have that around her neck on the Sabbath day because it was part of her identity. Part of her identity. Kind of like Josh's hat right there. I'm not sure I've ever seen you without that hat or one like it, right? <laughs> it's part of his identity, right? So... It, when, when this woman, and by the way, myrrh was very costly, very expensive. It's likely that the amount that she had with her, even though it was a small amount, would have been worth a year's salary. I don't know what you make in a year, but that sounds like a lot of money to me. So when she takes this vial and breaks it open and pours it out at the feet of Jesus, it's no small deal. Nobody, nobody plans to be a prostitute. It's not a career path. No little girl decides, oh, I know what I want to be when I grow up. Uh -uh. They end up there for other reasons, most of which are not good. I imagine that through it all, however it was that this woman acquired this uh, bottle of myrrh, that it represented part of her identity that was not associated with her past, but we, what she hoped her future might be someday. I think it represented the life she hoped she might one day have. But in the presence of Jesus, she broke that open and poured that out. This is one of the hardest things for us to do because these dreams about our lives, these hopes that we have for the life that we might, ha might one day have, we hold very tightly to them. Because letting go of them feels like we're just surrendering, like, we're, like somehow we're giving up, that somehow we're just, okay, this is just my lot in life, and you know, that we will settle for less. That's what it feels like. That's why we hold so tightly to them. But when you're, when you're in the presence of Jesus, the one who spared nothing for your saving, can't we trust him with our future? 
Can't we trust him that his plans for us are greater than our dreams for us? The one who was writing your future while you were still in your mother's womb, when you'd not even seen the light of day, that one can be trusted, dear one, with your whole life, your future. Wise men, wise women, always come to that point where we surrender not only the life we've had, but the life we hoped for, the life we wish we had. Now, let me ask you this question. What's in your alabaster flask? Here's mine. Now, before I open this, this is a plastic box. Before I open this up and show you what's inside and tell you a little more about it, let me just say this. I am not a collector. I am not a hoarder of any sort. I'm the exact opposite. I'm a minimalist. If I didn't live with the woman I live with, my house would have nothing in it. It would be, and it would be so orderly and sterile, right? And my kids are scarred for life because they often found in the garbage treasured, uh, you know, trophies and stuffed animals and stuff. You know, because if you leave stuff laying around in my house very long, it's going to be gone. Because I don't, that's how I am, right? So I don't keep stuff. I'm not sentimental. I'm sorry to let you know that. But anyway, that's who I am. So uh, anyway, I have this though, okay? And in here is these, um, you know, ancient prehistoric forms of, of uh, audio recording. I, I, th last night at the service, there was really someone here who had never seen one of these before, so that's how old I am, but anyway. There's um, 24 of these in this box, and I have 22 of these boxes. There's 500 of these. They're not you know, um, music, they're sermons that I preached during the first 10 years of my life. After that, we st started to move to electronic media. This one right here is the first recorded sermon of my life. I'd been preaching for about a year before we started making recordings, but this was from October of 1983. So, why do I have these? Why do I hold on to these? Now, I will say this, that the Lord, what I'm going to tell you now, the Lord dealt with me quite some time ago. I just haven't gotten around to figuring out what to do with these. But I, I had to ask myself one day, why are these in your garage? Um, they've moved with us all over through our lives. Why do I have them? I'll tell you why. Because... I think what I was made for and the thing that I do best, I'm not saying I do it well, I'm just saying it's what I do best, is preach the Bible, teach the Bible. And these represent to me, I'll just be honest with you, they represent to me what I hoped my life would be. That someday I'd be, you know, Andy Stanley or Francis Chan or Bill Hybels or somebody like that and people would want, oh, what, where is those messages from way back when? <laughs> what is that about? That's about me. 
That's about my dreams for my life. That's not about the kingdom of God. Can I tell you the life that I've had that Jesus has given me? It's been far better than the one I hoped I would have. My hopes can never measure up to the plans of God for me. And that day when the Lord confronted me about those things, I found myself after some struggle because we hold tightly to these things. I found myself breaking the top off that bottle and pouring it out. Trusting him. I'll bet you need to do that too. Now it may not be a physical thing, but undoubtedly you have something like that that you need to let go of. This is recording number 11190 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, December 6, 2015. This is the first message in a series titled, Gifts for a King. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, Mer.